Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Hal Hodson, the Economist technology correspondent. Coming up on today's show, is there a solution to dying coral reefs? We are at the point where we've made the impossible possible, and now our challenge is to figure out how we might take these new tools and relationships and take them underwater. And the Chinese space station that is out of control. Now, there's some controversy about whether China's ever actually formally admitted that it's lost control of this thing. But first, Professor Stephen Hawking, world-renowned cosmologist and scientist, passed away this morning in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Tributes are poured in from around the world on his life and work, and we spoke to some of his colleagues and peers about his scientific impact and legacy. First with me on the line is Professor Carlos Frank, Director of the Institute for Computational Cosmology at Durham University's world-renowned Theoretical Cosmology Research Group. Hello there, Professor Frank. Hello, Hal. I think the first question I want to know is whether you knew Professor Hawking personally or interacted with him personally. Yes, I knew him. I, uh, I knew him well. I interacted with him in multiple occasions. And I first met him a mere 42 years ago when he was um, in his early 30s. I, was, um, I just arrived in Cambridge, a PhD student at the department where he was a lecturer, and that was the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. Tell me a little bit about your first impression of Professor Hawking at that, that first time that you heard him speak and met him. Well, there was already aura around him, mostly because of his uh, scientific contributions that uh, in the beginning of his career, really, but uh, he'd already made a big splash with the uh, singularity theorems for black holes that he developed with Roger Penrose. So he was already a person of enormous renown. And so uh, that's, that was my first impression of him as somebody who was immensely lucid, very clear, and very enthusiastic as well. I mean, he had an intensity. Can you sum up Professor Hawking's impact on your field sort of since his foundational ideas and the impact that they've had on the science that's been done since then? So his first big contribution was uh, what I already alluded to, the uh, uh, singularity theorems, which were very powerful because they showed that the universe will inevitably make black holes. So before that, black holes were somewhat speculative. I just want to ask you a slightly different question, which is what do you think Professor Hawking's public legacy will be? We've been talking about his science, but what, what do you imagine that, that he will leave to the public and the public will remember him for? The non-specialist uh, will remember him as a person who was able to overcome really severe physical limitations to achieve tremendous intellectual heights. He's become a symbol of physics, but beyond that, a symbol of science, and beyond that, a symbol of what humanity can achieve and of the, of the best things that we have as humans, the ability to uh, use our brains to comprehend our universe. I think what he will be remembered for is this uh, sense of wonder about the universe, 
and the legacy he would leave us is the feeling that we can, in spite of um, many difficulties, broaden our minds and begin to understand the universe. That's wonderful, Professor Frank. Thank you very much for talking with us today. And now joining us is Professor Lisa Randall, an American theoretical physicist and cosmologist who's the Frank B. Bard Jr. Professor of Science on the Physics Faculty at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hello, Professor Randall. First of all, did you know Professor Stephen Hawking personally? I did. I met him really around the time I was doing some work on what was known as a warped extra dimension. And um, my encounters with him were quite delightful and amusing, actually. Amazing. Could you tell us any little anecdotes from them? One of them is that I went to a conference and had just done this this really good work, or at least work that was recognized. And it was really nice because I was actually a little bit late for the conference dinner. And I walked in and somebody pulled me over and said, Stephen Hawking is saving you a seat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was really great. So I um, really got to know him because I sat at the table next to him. He's also kind of funny. I actually met him once when I was on crutches. And with a straight face, he kind of looked at me and said, physicists like to climb mountains and fall off them. (laughs) um, You know, coming from him, it sounded rather um, amusing. Professor Randall, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Professor Hawking's impact on your field specifically, if there is any? Well, I mean, it's hard to define anybody's particular field in many ways. I mean, Stephen Hawking did general relativity, primarily um, study of gravity. Um, When we were working on an extra dimension of space, he actually um, really actually got quite excited about about our work too. And in fact, my collaborator, Raman Sundram, came very excited and told me that when Harvard was hosting him for the Loeb lectures, that actually our work featured quite prominently. And he worked on what black holes would look like in one of our theories, which actually turns out to be quite an interesting question, some aspects of which are still unresolved. I'd say the impact, though, of course, is the impact it has for everyone. I mean, knowing that there are quantum fluctuations and that they do lead to black holes decaying leads to interesting questions, but also makes black holes very different sorts of objects. Quantum fluctuations, of course, play a role in inflationary cosmology as well, and in fact, um, are responsible for the structure in the universe. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think Professor Hawking's sort of more general public legacy is? No, it's interesting. Um, You know, of course, on the whole, it's very positive to get people excited about science, to follow what's going on. Sometimes I worry, though, that the impact is to make people a little comfortable with not doing science, that they think you have to be such an anomaly to be able to do science. And so I think on the whole, it's very positive, but I do think we like stereotypes a little bit too much. And um, sometimes we think that you know, to be a physicist, you have to be really, really weird or different or physically different. And that's just not true. That's not to say that having someone who's an iconic figure isn't wonderful, but I think it's important to have him in the context of the rest of the field, too. Yeah. And I mean, I I suppose you could try and find a different message, which is given his very severe disabilities, that he's almost an advertisement for anyone being able to achieve in these fields that are very challenging. That's right. And I, I think there's very few people that take it that way, if you just hear how people talk about him and his legacy. But I absolutely agree with you that it just shows that if you're dedicated, I mean, of course, it also shows that he's brilliant and able to do this and had unique opportunities as well. You know, so people see in these things what they want at some level. And I think he was a master, honestly, of taking advantage of that. He knew how people saw him and he knew how to use that influence that he had. 
he spoke out as a public figure, you know, with some rather controversial things, some really important things. And I think as a voice of science in England, he's really important because, of course, sometimes science gets unduly trashed or criticized. And I think it's really important to have spokesmen. And I think he did recognize his role in that in that context as well. Not true that anyone can do science, but I don't think you have to assume certain physical or other attributes in order to do science. I mean, science is challenging, and but I think everyone should have access to it. Everyone should be able to learn what they want. I mean, that's why I wrote books. That's why he wrote books. People want to understand um, understand the material. And so it's very important to have it out there. Not everyone is going to be an expert in general relativity. But if people want to know what it's about, they should have access to that information. It sounds more like you are pushing back against the sort of genius characterization and sort of the one shining light of this field when I'm sure that's not how we would have described himself. I don't know. Some days he probably would, some days maybe not as much. I actually am I'm not. I mean, I'm saying that people who do science, they are special. People who have a really big impact. Um, it's not one thing or the other. We tend to simplify. He's one among several really important people in the field. And that's great. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm pushing back against is the idea that you have to be so different in order to do science. I think that should not be, people should get the message that science is a wonderful thing that um, you should have access to, that you should be filled to learn. And if you want to do science, it's, um, you're welcome to. I think that's a great message. Professor Randall from Harvard, thank you very much for talking to us. Sure, thank you. Next. By some estimates, half the world's coral has been lost since the 1980s, with many factors to blame. But what can be done to both protect and restore them to previous levels of health? I'm joined by Benjamin Sutherland, the Economist science correspondent, to find out more. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, good to hear from you. So what is now considered to be the biggest threat to coral health? Warming waters. There are a number of other things that have contributed to the mortality, including uh, agricultural runoff, sediment from coastal construction. But the big recent die-off, which was a series of heat waves in 2015, 2016, and 2017, took out about 20% of all coral on the planet. And that has really kind of uh, shocked observers and scientists. And corals are animals fundamentally, are they not? What is it about temperature that impacts them so seriously? Right. Yes, corals are indeed animals. A lot of people think of them as plants, but uh, they start off as larvae. They swim around. They find a place where they want to settle, and then they live there permanently. A rise in water temperature of just one or two degrees can be enough to, to kill them off if the water doesn't cool down fast enough. Is there anything that we can do to bring the temperature down? Well, there have been a number of initiatives. In fact, in December, Australia's Environment Ministry announced about $1.7 million U.S. million in money for a charity that wants to uh, use solar power to turn huge fan blades underwater to pull up deep, cool water and move that over parts of reefs. However, that idea has been ridiculed as... Uh, not just outrageously expensive on any kind of a meaningful scale, but also damaging because it's going to bring up water with higher levels of nitrogen and phosphates that can cause their own problems for the coral. Others have said, let's put uh, floating cloths out over coral reefs to protect them from sunlight. But those ideas really aren't practical on, on a large scale. You might be able to save a reef or two here and there that has high value for tourism. 
So it sounds like bringing the temperature down is kind of impractical. Is there anything else that we can do maybe to help the reefs survive in hotter water in general? Yes, exactly. So there are a number of uh, of groups worldwide now basically selectively breeding corals to try and create stronger strains and varieties of corals that can indeed withstand higher temperatures. Does it matter where these coral reefs are on the planet? Is there any geographical constraints? Well, a lot of scientists say that that corals shouldn't be moved from one area of the planet to another as that could upset the ecological balance, but that's a debate. There are other scientists saying, let's take corals from the southern Caribbean, which is a lot hotter, and move them up to areas in the northern Caribbean so that when that part of the Caribbean heats up, they'll, it'll be able to survive. And on that issue, we have Kristen Marhaver of the Karmabi Research Station in Curaçao joining us on the line. Hello, Kristen. So could you just tell us a little bit about what it is you're doing with these corals? What are you looking into? Sure. I've been studying coral reproduction for more than 10 years. And at the beginning, it was just a quest to understand how they reproduce and how we can help them reproduce. But what we found along the way is that we are getting better and better at getting coral babies back into the water. And so now our challenge is to help them survive when we put them back in the water. So one of the things my lab has been doing is looking for probiotic bacteria that can help coral juveniles settle at increased rates and survive better when they're back in the ocean. Gosh, okay. And so you are trying to figure out how to use their natural honing instincts that revolve around these bacterial communities. What have you learned about this? We started screening bacteria one at a time the same way that you would look for a new medicine, just trying to find a bacterium that would change their behavior. And now we have a whole set of bacteria that will encourage corals to settle at a higher rate. And what we see is if we add those to cultures in restoration programs, we get a higher number of settlers. Sometimes the settlers are even bigger and healthier looking. And when we put those juveniles back underwater, they're so far surviving at a higher rate as well. So it's almost like we're giving them a little inoculum of beneficial bacteria that can potentially help protect them from, from pathogens when they get back into the water. Right. So in practice, if we were actually to use this in in the wild in restoration efforts, maybe we already have, is the bacteria applied to the reef that you want the polyps to settle or is it applied to the polyps or to both? I've been adding my probiotics to cultures in the lab where we're rearing coral juveniles for restoration research. But other scientists are also thinking of ways that they might take beneficial bacteria out to the reef, say in a sort of pill that diffuses onto a coral or some kind of patch that might stop a disease from spreading or say from a robot that sprays a patch of reef the same way you might treat a field of crops with a uh, fertilizer. Right. So sort of crop spraying to prepare the ground for these tiny juvenile baby polyps that once they get there can, can survive quite well. Exactly. We are at the point where we've made, I would say, the impossible possible. And now our challenge is to figure out how we might take these new tools and relationships and take them underwater and scale them up to a scale that's going to be effective. That's fascinating, Kristen. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. What are your thoughts on the problems for the world's coral? or the life of Professor Stephen Hawking. Tell us in an email sent to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, a story that would have interested Professor Stephen Hawking, the out-of-control Chinese space station Tiandong-1. Launched in 2011, the eight-ton structure is orbiting the Earth at an average height of 250 kilometres, and it's currently overdue to crash down back to Earth. 
To learn more and see what threat it offers to us down on Earth, I'm joined by the Economist science correspondent, Tim Cross. Hello, Tim. So when did we find out that the Chinese had lost contact with this space station and thereby control? Well, the original plan was for this thing to last until 2013, and the Chinese then decided to extend its mission to 2016. This was their first ever crewed space station, and they sent two crews of Taikonauts, to give them their technical term, in 2012 and 2013. But the assumption is that they decided to keep it in orbit just in case its planned successor, Tiangong-2, didn't launch properly. In the end, it did. It's been up there since 2016. And that same year, the Chinese announced that they'd lost telemetry from Tiangong-1. Now, there's some controversy about whether China's ever actually formally admitted that it's lost control of this thing. That's what most amateur astronomers uh, and almost everybody else thinks. But it's not clear whether China's ever actually quite owned up to that. So if China has indeed lost control, as it seems they have, clearly this was not supposed to happen. But is it normal to lose control with large objects orbiting the planet? Well, it's certainly not unheard of. Just back in January, there was the upper stage of a Russian Zenit rocket fell back to Earth out of control. And that was about the same size as Tiangong-1 is. We've had much bigger things fall to Earth without anyone being in charge. So um, Skylab, which was an American space station uh, in the 1970s, that fell out of the sky in 1979 and NASA were only very slightly in control of it. It ended up spreading itself over quite a large part of Western Australia. So when do we expect this late space station to finally return to Earth? Well, we don't actually know. It all depends on what happens uh, up in space with something called space weather. So just because you're orbiting Earth doesn't actually mean you're outside the Earth's atmosphere. And at the sort of altitudes that you know, almost everything we put into space is at, there's a very, very thin sort of tenuous remnants of the atmosphere still up there, which means they all suffer from atmospheric drag, essentially. So all these satellites need periodic boosting, otherwise they're going to they're fall out of the sky. And exactly how much drag depends on all kinds of things. It depends on how active the sun is, it depends on what's going on with the Earth's magnetic field and so on. So it's, you can't actually give a very precise date. So the European Space Agency, for instance, thinks it's going to happen sometime between the 29th of March and I think the 6th of April. There's an American non-profit organization called the Aerospace Corporation who reckon that the 3rd of April is is the most likely date, but it could be, you know, a week either side of that. And because we don't know when it's going to come down, that also means we don't know where it's going to come down. And when it does, sometime in the next month, come down, is there a threat to human life? Well, probably not. But we can only talk about probabilities. Almost certainly, this is not going to hurt anyone because you, know, you have to remember, number one, the Earth is mostly ocean where nobody lives. Number two, large parts of the land area people don't live on either. And number three, you know, people are sort of small targets and there aren't really that many of them compared to how much land there is for this thing to hit. And like I said, you know, Skylab didn't hit anybody, even though it came down between uh, two towns. Columbia, again, came down over Texas and Louisiana and, and nobody on the ground was was hurt. But each individual case is probably not too bad. The problem comes when you have lots of these things. And back in the dawn of the space age, we had no real alternative because anything you put in low Earth orbit is going to come down eventually. It's just a question of when. Back in those days, satellites didn't have engines. Uh, rocket stages couldn't restart their engines. So you would send these things into orbit. And at some point later, impossible to predict when, they would kind of fall out of the sky again. This still happens, but it doesn't happen as often. And nowadays, we're generally much better about bringing these things down in a controlled way and aiming them at bits of the world where we know nobody lives. And in a way, this is what makes Tiangong quite unusual because it was designed to come down in a controlled fashion, but as it happens, it isn't going to. Right, so it's a numbers game, but it's one that we should be okay with. But I guess we will see. Tim, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Al.
And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. In London, I'm Hal Hodson and this is The Economist. And this week, I'll leave the final words for the podcast to Professor Hawking himself. Here are the most important pieces of advice that I've passed on to my children. One, remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Two, never give up work. Work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it. Three, if you are lucky enough to find love, remember it is rare and don't throw it away. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.